Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome to True CIA Spy Missions, a special edition from True Spies. In this series, you'll hear the true stories behind some of the agency's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? True Spies. True Spies. We're in the dreams come true business. Some want money, some want revenge against the regime. And a good intelligence officer can make a target's dreams come true. This is True CIA Spy Missions. The dreams come true business. What's your price? Sure, you're not for sale, right? Incorruptible. Me too. But we all have dreams. And who's to say, if it really came down to it, what we might do to make them come true? This is Barry Broman speaking. This week's True Spy spent over 30 years doing just that. I served in the clandestine service of the Central Intelligence Agency from 1971 to 1996. This is a story about relationships, building them, keeping them, using them. These are the skills that make a successful intelligence officer. Barry Broman learned his craft in Southeast Asia during a period of intense conflict. He's an expert in its politics and cultures. But one of the defining missions of his career took place on home soil, where his regional expertise offered few, if any, advantages during a homecoming that stripped away his assurances and forced him to grow. We'll get to that. But first, let's join Barry on those formative steps into the field. In the early 1970s, Barry Broman was stationed in Cambodia. It was his first posting with the CIA's clandestine service. Now, the clandestine service uh, actually only comprises about 5% of uh, CIA personnel. And uh, we're the sharp tip of the spear in the sense of recruiting foreign agents. His mission? To gather intelligence for the USA through a hand-picked network of enemy informants. Because Barry was not a spy. Spies, after all, are essentially sources of information. They commit espionage. Remember, in most countries, that's a crime. Barry was a case officer. So, a case officer makes spies, he hires spies. Once you're recruited, you're a spy. The person that handles you is a, uh, is a case officer. At the time, Cambodia was in the grip of a bloody civil war between the American-backed government and the communist Khmer Rouge. He would prove to be a baptism of fire for the rookie case officer. It was a nasty, tight little war. Not many people know about it because there were so few people there. The U.S. Embassy was limited to 200 people. Today, the history of the conflict in Cambodia often takes a backseat to the war in Vietnam. But both events were part of the same ideological struggle playing out across Southeast Asia in the 50s, 60s and 70s. East versus West. Communism versus capitalism. America versus Russia. The Cold War. 
By 1975, the Khmer Rouge were gaining ground in Cambodia. The Cambodian capital, Phnom Penh, had been surrounded for over a year. Barry's own house had been hit by rockets four times during his stay in the country. Now the mission was officially over. The will to fight was gone. The CIA arranged a hasty exit for the American personnel on the ground. The airport was within mortar range of the Khmer Rouge, so it was a very dicey operation getting in and out of of the country. But uh, we drew down the embassy to a small cadre toward the end. I left on the last fixed-wing plane. The Spartan aircraft chugged above the cratered rice paddies below, on its way to the relative safety of neighboring Thailand. Barry had escaped the fall of Phnom Penh, but only just. The evacuation had been an inglorious end to a brutal conflict. In the years to come, the triumphant Khmer Rouge would be responsible for between one and two million deaths on the killing fields of Cambodia. Even for a lifelong patriot like Barry, the abandonment of the Cambodians stands out as a black mark on the USA's record. It was an unmitigated disgrace and disaster that the Americans did to the Cambodians, to the people who had their confidence in us. Because, like many of the intelligence operatives we encounter on True Spies, the core values of service and loyalty were in the blood. Let's find out a little bit more about Barry's path to the CIA. Two great advantages I gained from my father's service in the Air Force. One was the chance to spend four years in England when he was the base engineer at RAF Manston, an air base right on the English Channel from 54 to 58. And the second big boon from my father came when uh, he was assigned in 1962 as an advisor to the Royal Thai Air Force building runways in northeastern Thailand for the coming war in Vietnam. And Barry's father, who had served as a glider pilot in the Second World War, was keen for his son to experience a life of adventure too. He allowed me to drop out of uh, university after my first year, had a scholarship, University of Illinois, which I gave up when my father invited me to come out with him to Thailand for one year, and it changed my whole life. Here I am in Bangkok, 1962, 18 years old, enjoying myself immensely, playing tennis all day at the Royal Bangkok Sports Club, been partying all night. Like most parents, the senior Mr. Broman wanted more for his son than a life of directionless tropical luxury. And after about two weeks, my father said, this wasn't exactly what I had in mind for your year out of college. So if you don't get a job, you go back to school in the fall. Fortunately, Barry's extracurricular activities weren't limited to tennis. At University of Illinois, I'd been a photographer for the Daily Illini, our newspaper. I had some clippings. I took them down to the Associated Press office in Bangkok and asked for a job. Uh, it wasn't very hopeful, but I was giving it a shot. It was the early 1960s, and the struggle for control of Southeast Asia was gaining pace. There was a lot of news to cover, and the resources of the Associated Press were spread thin. 
Barry was in the right place at the right time. The bureau chief, Tony Escoda, looked at my clippings and said, can you go to Korat tomorrow? Korat is an airbase up in northeastern Thailand where U.S. military troops were coming in as part of during the Lao crisis of 1962. Still a teenager, Barry worked as a photographer for the Associated Press for a year before returning to the USA to pursue an undergraduate course at the University of Washington. In 1967, he took a commission with the U.S. Marine Corps, who decided that he should take a master's degree in Southeast Asian studies. Smart, patriotic, worldly, and adventurous, Barry was becoming a near-perfect candidate for the CIA. And uh, toward the end of my time in grad school, one of my professors, an old gentleman, asked if I'd ever thought about joining the CIA when my time in the Marines were up. I said, never, never thought about it. So he said, look, I know a chap, uh, a recruiter. Uh, he'd like to talk to you. So I met with this fellow, and uh, he's a well-known CIA recruiter on the West Coast. And uh, he said, look, uh, you are you're getting a master's degree. Uh, you've got time in the area. You're a specialist. You could be either a clandestine service officer, ops officer in the field, or you could be an analyst in Washington and become an expert, a world-class expert in your field. Sounds tempting, doesn't it? But at the time, Barry was set on a different path. And I said, look, I'm a Marine officer, and when I get my master's in a few months, I'm going to go to war. The recruiter didn't bat an eyelid. He was willing to play the long game. He handed me his card and he said, here's my card. If you live, call this number six months before you get out of the Marine Corps. So I took his card. I went to war. I lived. Three years later, Barry had risen to the rank of company commander at Camp Pendleton Marine Corps base in California. He'd done his duty and more. Now it was time for a new challenge. With one eye on the future, he dug out the car that the CIA recruiter had given him. I didn't think the guy would remember me, but I called the number six months before I got out. And uh, the same man came on. He said, let me get your file. Came back on. He said, okay, meet me at the Coronado Hotel in uh, San Diego, California on uh, Thursday at 7 o'clock. I met him down there and he recruited me. From photographer to Marine to CIA case officer. As it turned out, Barry's first two roles had prepared him well for his third and final line of work. There's a lot of similarities between journalism and intelligence collection. Everybody wants to get the story. They want to get it right. In the AP, you go out and you find your uh, your source, your person that you need to get the story from. It's the same in the CIA. You look for people who have access to intelligence that the United States government wants to know. And we have the advantage in CIA of paying our informants. If you're back in AP, you don't pay people for the news. You get it for free. So that makes life a little easier. And the Marines? How does open conflict prepare you for a life of covert ops? So then uh, going into the Marine Corps as an officer, an infantry officer in combat, you've got to lead men in battle. And uh, again, you're dealing with people. It's a people-to-people kind of relationship. Barry's languages, people skills, and connections in the region made him an ideal candidate for the Cambodia posting. 
But after the bloody fall of Phnom Penh, it was time to return home, at least for a little while. As he made his way back to the United States, Barry had some reservations about the change of scenery. When you're uh, an officer in the clandestine service, you spend your time most effectively in the field. The good officers don't want to come home, and the bad officers don't want to go to the field. Among my peers, uh, the, the longer you spent out, the better. But there were certainly upsides to a cushy desk position in Washington, D.C. As Barry had learned in Cambodia, the risks of operating in the field were all too real. If you make a mistake in the field, you ought to recruit someone, and they say no, and they report it, you can be thrown out of the country within uh, 48 hours, persona non grata, that's called, PNG. This is very bad career-wise. There's always a threat. You can be, you can be shot. A, a lot of bad things can happen if you're a CIA officer in the field. So when you're back in Washington, actually in Langley, Virginia, across the Potomac River, um, you can relax and you can enjoy life and you can do American things. And it's not like a stint on home turf was all TV, barbecues, and baseball games. The calmer pace of life in D.C. allowed case officers like Barry to up their game in preparation for their next international posting. When you're home, when you're at headquarters, you're not running operations. I mean, you may be guiding them if you're on an area desk. You might be guiding operations and things like that, so you're in support. That's good. I mean, these are the guys that supported you, so now it's your turn to support them. Or you could go onto a staff. You could be under counter-narcotics, for instance. You could be in counter-terrorism. And then this gets you into a, a, a different area of, of expertise. Or you could go off for another language training in preparation for your next assignment. This is all productive time. Barry had no idea just how productive his time back home would turn out to be. Not least because his proximity to the core of the US government gave him the opportunity to work on joint operations with other intelligence agencies. And this is what happened when I was tapped to work on a CIA MI6 operation. MI6. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, or if you've enjoyed a James Bond movie in the past 60 years, you'll know what that name means. The British Secret Intelligence Service. I get called in one day at my desk and I'm told that uh, I have an opportunity to work in the field with MI6. And this came as a great surprise. And even today, I'm not sure how, how it came that I was tapped for this assignment because it was a, a career-changing uh, operation that I was involved with. And in looking back, I think that one reason they tapped me was uh, I'd had a good record so far clean uh, in Southeast Asia. No, Barry had never been PNG, persona non grata. He'd never had his cover blown, never been chased out of a posting. He'd been highly effective during his time in the field. But that wasn't all. Secondly, I had a background. I had four years in prep school at East Kent where I learned uh, to play cricket and uh, I became an expert on uh, British colonial stamps and colonial history and uh, became a, a great fan of uh, Winston Churchill and I became an Anglophile. In other words, he was one of us. But think about it. 
there must have been other operatives with glowing track records. And if you've ever watched the coverage of a royal wedding, you'll know that American Anglophiles aren't exactly thin on the ground. Looking back, Barry thinks there was another factor at play. Also, the fact that I was relatively junior, the fact that I knew nothing at all about the target that was selected that were to chase, uh, now brings me to mind that if they'd send in a more senior, experienced officer with a specialty in that area, it might have caused some friction dealing with the British MI6 officer, who was, in fact, an expert in the field. Even the world's most powerful secret services can't escape the specter of office politics. So then, this was a British-led operation taking place on American soil. The two countries have a historic bond, it's true, but that didn't mean that the CIA were willing to let a foreign intelligence agency operate in their backyard without oversight. Well, the way the rules work, and I don't want to overstep here, when SIX is active in the US, it's only in a liaison capacity. So that um, if they if they want to come in, uh, in, like in this case, they want to come in, they have to uh, share it. On paper, the mission itself was a relatively straightforward one. Barry and his MI6 colleague were to locate and recruit a foreign dignitary who was visiting the USA. I can't be too specific because uh, it's a sensitive operation. And all I can say is that it was a hard target. A hard target in the argo of the Cold War intelligence community signifies a target who hails from a denied area, a communist country, basically. That included the USSR, Red China, and any of their less influential allies. Nearly 40 years on, Barry is still sworn to secrecy about the specifics of this operation. But he was able to give us a little more detail about the MI6 agent he was assigned to work with. He was uh, described to me by my supervisor as the pluperfect case officer. In other words, the best of the best. And he said, gentleman could have been my father. Old enough, he and my father were in World War II, although the Brit was younger than my father. He had a distinguished war record. The British agent even had a highly appropriate celebrity lookalike. If you're a fan of uh, John le Carré and especially of uh, Sir Alec Guinness, this officer looked like Alec Guinness portraying George Smiley, one of uh, le Carré's uh, famous characters. He was tall, he was urbane, he was sophisticated, he spoke uh, foreign languages uh, fluently. He had literally written a book on espionage. He was a senior MI6 officer, and I was the guy he was sent out into the field with to chase and recruit a hard target. For the purposes of this story, we'll refer to this smiley lookalike as Alex. Close to Alec, but not quite. And for Alex, this operation was more than a professional undertaking. It was personal. Alex had known of this case for almost two decades. Alex wanted to take this scalp for himself. This was his career winner. Barry met with Alex, and the mission began in earnest. MI6 had acquired the target's travel itinerary. Needless to say, this was a very good start. It was a sort of an international, let's say, delegation or something like that. It was, you know, these guys are officials, and some of them are quite senior officials. It wasn't, uh, you know, it's not going to be in the newspaper. 
but certainly these people had to have visas, okay? And so it, it would come in the, immediately to the attention of FBI. In another sterling example of cross-agency collaboration, the FBI, America's domestic intelligence agency, had played their part too. With this crucial piece of information in their possession, Barry and Alex began a four-week road trip, tracking their target across the USA. Almost immediately, a distinct power dynamic revealed itself. Since it was in the States, technically I was in charge Although it became clear to me that uh, Alex was the guy that was going to make this thing work or not work. He knew what to do, he knew how to do it, and he did it. And, and I was taking notes, okay? It had been a while since Barry had been anyone's junior partner. Fortunately, his ego didn't bruise easily. If his tours in the field had taught him anything, it was that in his profession, there was always more to learn. Alex and I spent a lot of time talking about things, and he taught me a lot. And one of the things that I always taught my junior officers when I became a chief of station and whatnot, as Alex put it to me, we're in the dreams come true business. Everyone has a dream, and a good intelligence officer can make uh, a target's dreams come true. So you've identified your target, you know roughly where he's going to be. But how do you convince them to come over to your side? Case officers can spend months, even years, building up a relationship with an informant. In this case, Alex and Barry didn't have that luxury. This is what we call a cold pitch. Typically, I mean, I've recruited dozens of people in, in my career, and every one of those people, and I'm not counting this one, every one of those cases, I knew the person you know, personally, we were friends, they liked me, they trusted me. I knew what their dreams were, and I was in a position to make them come true. And it happened. How would you identify which buttons to push? Remember, time is not on your side. Fortunately, a target's nationality and cultural background can be a useful broad brush indicator of what might work for them. Typically, uh, let's say Americans you know, their dreams, they want money, and uh, and they get it, and hopefully they get caught when they spy. It's more nebulous uh, for foreigners. Uh, some want money, some want a better life. They see how it is in the West, and they want to join that. Uh, some uh, want revenge, uh, Russian cases uh, in particular. Uh, Grandpa was killed on the gulag. Daddy died uh, in a... In a Stalin purge, and so they want revenge against the regime. This target had been on Alex's radar for two decades. They'd never met, but he knew enough about the man to hazard an informed guess at what might motivate him. The hard part was finding a moment in their target's hectic schedule to make their approach. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. We came to a town where 
The group that uh, our target was with had some time off. We saw the pattern that was uh, coming forward. We saw when they had downtime that uh, chaps could uh, wander off to a bookstore or, or whatever. And so uh, we just watched him. Uh, we, were, we were right with him every step of the way. He didn't know it. All we had to do was to look at his schedule on an hour-by-hour basis and see when he might be free and then to hone in and, and grab him for 30 minutes, which is all it took. Eventually, the moment that the two men had been waiting for presented itself. The target was isolated. Barry can't tell us exactly where the approach was made. But use your imagination. Maybe it was between the shelves of one of those charming little bookstores he mentioned. Maybe it was in the booth of a diner or a dimly lit hotel bar. Wherever it was, it would need to be relatively secluded. Foreign governments have measures in place to thwart the recruitment of their staff by enemy agencies. These guys have their own security guys watching them so they don't defect. And uh, that was another issue that we had to contend with. Alex and Barry had to move quickly. The unnamed delegate's security detail would not leave him exposed for long. I was very excited. Alex, of course, it's hard to tell if he's excited because he's a smooth old Brit and he's done this before. Necessarily, Alex was a difficult man to read. During his long and decorated career, he'd perfected a cast-iron poker face, which made the next words to come out of his mouth all the more surprising. So um, then he says to me, now before we make the approach, I feel I should tell you my secret instructions. Secret instructions? Barry was stunned. Imagine the scenarios that might flash through your brain in this moment. Were these instructions even from MI6? So I'm a bit surprised. I mean, I didn't know if he's got secret instructions. Why tell me? And I said so. And he said, well, he said, uh, I feel you should know. I said, Alex, what are your secret instructions? The older man looked Barry in the eye. A flicker of a smile darted across his distinguished features. He spoke again. He said, I was told not to let this case come to recruitment. Don't pitch him. Barry hadn't seen this coming. If Alex and MI6 had known all along that they were not supposed to be recruiting this target, why go to the effort of driving around America for a month? Why waste everyone's time? So now I'm surprised. I say, Alex, what the hell? What are we doing? Why are you here? He said, I'm here because MI6 wants to recruit this guy unilaterally. Just, just us, not with the Americans. Ah, so MI6 weren't against recruiting the target. They were just against sharing him with the USA. Remember, MI6 had to liaise with the CIA if they were working on American soil. This meant that the British would lose exclusive access to the target if he was recruited. It would mean red tape, delays, and quibbles over how the asset was used. And no matter how close a relationship between the USA and the UK is, both countries are duty-bound to act in their own interests. Alex had been tasked with deliberately failing the assignment. If a recruitment on American soil failed, 
then MI6 would be free to pursue the target another time, in another place, on their own terms. But Alex had his own agenda, independent of his employers. He said, I'm telling you this because we can get him. After 20 years of chasing, Alex wasn't about to let internal politics stop him getting his man. He continued. This is a rare opportunity. I've been after this chap for two decades. We can get him now. And I said, yeah, but you've got this secret instructions. And he said, ah, well, you don't know that. I'm just giving you this as background. And I said, well, what do you want to do? He says, well, the quote was, let's be robust. Exciting as it was, the MI6 man's zeal presented a conflict for Barry. After all, Alex wasn't the only one who'd had an unofficial caveat added to his mission briefing. Then, the ball shifts to me, and I say, Alex, I wasn't going to say this, but I too have secret instructions from my supervisor. And so he was surprised. He said, well, can you share that? I said, yeah. My boss told me, whatever happens on this operation, don't piss off the Brits. Realization dawned. If this recruitment went ahead, both men would be in open defiance of their orders. A positive outcome would, in fact, piss off the Brits. Put yourself in Barry's position. Would you recruit the hard target? On one hand, you have enormous respect for your colleague. He's older, wiser, and considerably more experienced. In the month you've spent on the road together, you've made a good friend. Your gut says to trust him. On the other hand, you know this mission could be a professional turning point. If a successful recruitment has negative consequences for the relationship between MI6 and the CIA, you could risk jeopardizing your career prospects, however underhanded the behavior of the British agency had been. In some ways, life in war-torn Cambodia had been less complicated. And so now, here we go. What are we going to do? And Alex said, listen, you don't know my secret instructions. I don't know your secret instructions. Let's just go get him. Then again, what's one more little secret? Time to be robust. The two men, bonded by adrenaline, made their move. But oddly enough, the hard target didn't seem all too surprised. He knew what was going to happen. I mean, uh, he could see it coming. Ah, this could mean one of two things. Option one, the hard target has been tipped off. Perhaps his own people had noticed the two men on their tail. Or maybe somebody within MI6 didn't quite trust that Alex would follow through on his secret orders and had thought of a contingency plan. Option two, the target has been in this game a while. He knows how these approaches are made and he's not altogether opposed to them. Naturally, option two was preferable. The fact that when we got him alone in a room, he knew that it was, something was happening. And especially when uh, you know, these, uh, these foreigners are speaking his language fluently and then have knowledge of his job and his family. I mean, the, normally a guy like that would be running for the door. But the foreign delegate didn't run. Alex made his opening pitch. The target listened. This was a good start. 
Even listening to an approach from a hostile intelligence agency could have dire consequences. These guys, um, you know, they get briefed by their own counterintelligence people. You know, if someone approaches you, you have to, you know, don't talk to them. You have to report it immediately. I mean, he'd, he'd have been shot if he was caught. It was, uh, it was a measure of Alex's skills that he didn't get to the door. He didn't try to get to the door. You make your own luck in this business. Alex finished his spiel. He'd offered the target his heart's desire. Barry can't tell us exactly what was on the table. Maybe money, maybe revenge, maybe the chance of an all-American retirement in some sunny corner of the state. But in that moment, it didn't matter. He rejected the pitch. He turned it down. He said, it's, it's too dangerous. I can't do it. Maybe this was for the best. After all, they'd followed their secret orders to the letter. The recruitment had failed. But Alex had one more trick up his sleeve. Remember, he knew every detail of this man's life. He knew where to apply pressure. And so, knowing the, <laughs> the, the dream... That the, that the target had, he was told, if your wife knew what we were offering you and she knew that you turned it down, she would kill you. The target had been preparing to make his exit. Now he stopped. He mused for a moment, visibly conflicted. Who presented the greater danger? Who would he rather betray? his country, or his wife. Weighing up the options, his choice was clear. And he said, I'll work for you. And he did. So, in a nutshell, the guy was recruited. At CIA headquarters in Langley, this was a cause for celebration. Barry, despite operating outside of his Southeast Asian comfort zone, had brought in a high-level asset. The response from MI6 was more muted. I had a, an accelerated promotion for my role in this operation, and Alex was retired. And I felt uh, very badly about that, and I still do. But Alex didn't mind. Even if his bosses at MI6 were unhappy, he'd finally completed a mission that had spanned a good chunk of his career. Who needs a faultless operational record when you've achieved that? Now, Alex was a heavily decorated fellow. I can't tell you the particular decoration because that would give him away. I, all I can say is this was Alex's big case and, uh, and it happened and I feel so good, glad for him. It didn't really bother him. Over, you know, after I saw him, we discussed this several times. You know, it didn't bother him that, um, that he got retired because of this. Uh, I think there was some in-house politics or something like that. But uh, certainly Britain got great intel that was shared with Americans. It's, it's kind of win-win. Alex became a friend and mentor, the James Bond to Barry's Felix Leiter. They stayed in touch for years after their first operation together, and Barry's admiration for him runs deep, even today. In 1996, Barry decided to join his old friend in retirement. After a long career, that had eventually returned him to his first love, Southeast Asia. My last posting was Chief of Station Rangoon, Burma, which I enjoyed very much. And since retirement, 
I've, I have a consulting firm. I'm on the board of several companies, but I've did uh, 14 books, mostly photo books, and nine documentary films, um, all of them in Southeast Asia. So I keep my hand in. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next week for another encounter with True Spies. We all have valuable spy skills, and our experts are here to help you discover yours. Get an authentic assessment of your spy skills created by a former head of training at British Intelligence at spyscape.com. Disclaimer. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the subject. These stories are told from their perspective and their authenticity should be assessed on a case-by-case basis. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.